happened with me dividing up the teams. But something happened this year. First practice, I said, it's time to scrimmage, and a couple of their hands went up, and Coach, Coach, can we be captains? Can we be captains? Can we pick teams? And for all of about one-eighth of a second, I thought that was a great idea. But then I started getting this mental picture of the last one picked. You know how it works. You get a couple of team captains, right? And if they're good captains, the first person will pick the the best-skilled player that's available. Then this person, the other captain, will pick the next best player, and so on and so forth, right? You're picking the best players until you're down to two kids, and they're just sitting there. And that last captain's like, hmm... And he picks one, and there's always one just sitting there. And he's bound to feel left out because I guarantee you, he knows he was not picked. He was inherited. He was not chosen. This past week, I asked you guys to read Romans chapter 9 through 11 in preparation for this morning. And I've come to realize There's a lot in those chapters that can really scream feeling picked or not picked. Now, Romans 9 through 11 is a section in the the book of Romans that a lot of theologians, a lot of commentators, they just struggle with it. They don't know exactly where it fits or or how it fits in in this letter. The one thing they they come down upon, though, they, they all agree. This section was, for the most part, written to the Jews that would be listening to Paul write this letter. So the focus in section 9 through 11 was really the Jews. Now, whether you read it or not, uh, I know for me, this part in Paul's letter has, has not been one I've been looking forward to. These two chapters, they don't settle well with me. And they haven't settled well with me any of the, I've probably read it 40 to 50 times since August. None of those times have I liked when I've read chapters 9 through 11. Because I think they have the very real potential of letting people feel left out. There's a lot in there about God choosing some people, but not choosing others. God hardening the hearts of some people, but softening the hearts of others. There's some questions of, is that fair? And, and it just, ah, it, it didn't settle. For me, there's a rub in God choosing. So this past week, as I read through this, this section, I grumbled, and I questioned, and I re-questioned God. Now, standing here today, I, I, I want to tell you, I don't have it all figured out, but I think that the study I did helped ease some of the unrest in me, and I'm, I'm hoping it will do the same. Really, what took place was there was a couple of commentaries that pulled me out of this tunnel vision focus on just these two chapters and reminded me of how they fit into the entire letter of Romans, and even more so, how they fit into the entire story of Scripture. So we're going to take that vantage point this morning as we look at these two chapters. Uh, Before we do, though, I do want to ask God's blessing again on our time in Scripture. Lord God, you know how much I've struggled this week uh, in in preparing this. You know how much this kind of unsettles me. I thank you, Lord, that uh, you know what's going to be said And I ask that you would guide and direct our time in Scripture. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the last several weeks, we've been in a series called Roman Road Construction, and we've been looking at several of the key themes in Romans. 
We've looked at sin. We've looked at salvation. Last week, we looked at sanctification. And this week, we look at God's sovereignty. This week, we look at God's sovereignty. God choosing. This is a very hotly debated topic amongst the different factions in the Christian church. I mean, if you're a Calvinist or if you're a Wesleyan or an Arminian, you, you fall on different sides of, of what you, how you interpret God's sovereignty. I mean, topics uh, along the lines of uh, predestination, the elect versus the damned, God's hand in each and every situation versus not, human choice versus God's control. It's a sticky, sticky debate, and we could spend a lot of time looking at what different people say about this, but that's just commentary. So this morning, we want to spend a lot of time in the actual Scripture, but I want you also to realize that what you hear from me this morning is my commentary on Scripture. I'm hoping and trusting that God has brought some insight into it. So let's dive in here. God choosing. What does God being sovereign actually mean? How does that play out in our everyday? How does that play out in the eternal? Well, in an article on the Free Methodist USA website, I came across an explanation of God's sovereignty that really resonated with me, and it kind of helped shape the definition I'll be working off of. This is what it said. It said, free Methodists do not believe that the doctrine of sovereignty of God means that God has predestined everything in the sense that God absolutely and directly causes it to happen. Rather, God's sovereignty means that the universe has meaning and order. There are some things that must happen, such as the fulfillment of prophecy in accordance with God's purposes. There are many things that may happen, given the freedom God has bestowed upon humanity. But God is sovereignly at work in all these things, so that in each in its own way, it contributes to the realization of God's purposes. Did you follow all that? Let me simplify it. Here is my definition of God's sovereignty. God is bringing about his purposes in the world. He's in charge, and he's got a plan. God is bringing about his purposes in the world. He's in charge, and he has a plan. To me, that is God's sovereignty. And this morning, these two chapters show us how God is telling through Paul how his ultimate purpose is being carried out. Now, these chapters, as I said, was really focused to the Jewish listeners, the Israelites. And there was a rub for the Jews in who God was choosing. There was a rub for the Jews in who God was choosing. Here's the point-blank truth of Scripture. Just like team captains, God chooses. There are some people that God says, I want you on my team. He chose people throughout the pages of Scripture. And wearing his heart on, the, on his sleeve, Paul reminds his Jewish listeners of this. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. He says, With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. 
He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are all ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as the human nature is concerned. He is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Paul is reminding his Jewish listeners, look, God chooses people, and he chose you. If we backed up just a couple of verses in chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, we see Paul saying this, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him, And having called them, he gave them the right standing with himself. And having given him right standing, he gave them his glory. Now, those verses, most times, especially if you're of a specific doctrinal persuasion, those verses are read as pertaining to individual Christians. But given what Paul goes on to talk about in chapters 9 through 11, I think it could be seen that Paul is reminding the Israelite people, God chooses, and he he chose you. He always chooses, but he chooses with a purpose. This theme of God's sovereignty, choosing with a purpose, is going to resurface over and over today. Early in Scripture, we see God choosing the first person to be, uh, to, to be his own. We see this in the call of Abram. You can just listen to Genesis chapter 12. The Lord has said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. God chooses, but it's with a purpose. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. God said to Abraham, I choose you, but I choose you because I have a plan. The Jewish people that were listening to Paul in this letter to Rome, they would have known this story and they would have felt pride in their chosen ancestral connections. So for them, having already heard chapters 1 through 8, you've got to understand there's a rub and a tension This is real life. They're saying, wait, 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 Paul. How are you talking about other people getting in? We're the chosen ones. We're all in, right? Is there really room for them, the Gentiles? I mean, if there's only enough room for certain people, we're in. How about them? God, are you really going back on your promise about us being your chosen people? If you look at chapters 1 through 8, you're going to see how they could think that. Now, Paul says to them, wait, not so fast. You may think you're all in, but remember the story. Not all of Abraham's offspring are in. Chapter 9, verses 6 and following. Well then, Paul says, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God, only the children of the promise. 
are considered to be Abraham's children. Only the children of the promise. Paul then reminds them of the story of Rebekah and her two sons, the twins, Jacob and Esau. Even before they were born, God said to Rebekah, look, I choose Jacob to be the favored one. Even before they were born, before they had any chance to prove their worthiness of being chosen, God said, "Ah, I choose him already. Can you see how the Jews listening would be a little disgruntled? Paul's sitting here essentially saying, not all of you who think you are in are really in. God chooses, but he chooses with a purpose. Paul, is he's no dummy. I'm sure that he thought and rethought about every sentence before he penned it to parchment and sent it to Rome. He knew what he was writing would create some unrest, some, some anger, some frustration, and he addressed that. Romans 9, 14, 15, and 16, Paul says, are, are we saying then that God is unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose. And I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is with God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. And then... Paul breaks out the big guns. He says, look, remember, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And I'm going to do some of that to you. Verse 18. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others. So they refuse to listen. Oh, and he keeps going. Well then, you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? i got to be honest, I thought that as I was reading those. So I'm glad he addresses that. Paul says, no, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? Ow. Paul says, who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Let me remind you of the definition we're working off of for God's sovereignty. It's that God is bringing about his purposes in the world, his ultimate purposes. He has a plan and he's in charge. I began by telling you that I coach my boys' soccer teams. In the past few years, these three-year-olds who did everything they were told, have become six, seven, eight, nine, and ten-year-olds who have developed voices. And they have, at times, began to question, Coach, why are we doing that? Coach, I don't like this drill. Why are we doing that? Now, most times, I, I tell them, I explain it to them. I think, I think they deserve those reasons. But there are other times I don't. There are other times I say, you're doing that because I'm the coach. That's why. Now do it. They don't like it when we run at the end of practice. They don't understand why we run at the end of practice. I have a plan. My plan is to make them better conditioned than any other team that we're playing. So I could say to them, who are you, 10-year-old boy, to question me, Coach James? Paul was saying to the Israelites, who are you to question God? Hey, there's that clay and potter story. Remember it, guys? Remember your history? 
The Israelites would have heard echoes of some of their more famous prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah compared the Israelites to clay and God as the potter. Isaiah 29, 16. How foolish can you be? He is the potter and he is certainly greater than you, the clay. Should the created thing say of the one who made it, he didn't make me. Does a jar ever say, the potter who made me is stupid? You go 15 chapters later, Isaiah tackles the same theme again. What sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shaped it, saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? Their other prophet, Jeremiah, chapter 18. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, go down to the potter's shop, and I will speak to you there. So Jeremiah did as he was told, and he found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar he was did not turn out as he had hoped, so he crushed it into a lump of clay and started over again. Then the Lord gave me, Jeremiah, this message. O Israel, can I not do to you as this potter has done to this clay? As the clay is in the hands of the potter, so you are in my hands. You hear the echoes from Romans 9, 20 and 21? Commentator N.T. Wright says this, He says, these prophetic passages tell of a stage in Israel's history when God was struggling with a rebellious Israel. Like a potter working with clay that simply won't go into the right shape. The image of a potter in clay was not designed to speak in general terms about human beings as lifeless lumps of clay over and against God as the only living and thinking being. It was designed to speak very clearly about God's purpose in choosing and calling Israel and about what would happen if Israel, like a lump of clay, failed to respond to the gentle molding of God's hands. Israel, the Jews, in their historical relationship with Yahweh, even though they had been the chosen people, they were working out of the wrong paradigm of salvation. They were still trying to be made right with God by works, by following the law, not by just accepting the fact that God chose them. Paul reminds them of this in chapter 9, verse 31 and 32. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, they never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. They stumbled over the rock that was in their path. You jump to chapter 10, verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart, Paul says, and my prayer to God is for my people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it's misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with Himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. They could have just chosen to be, to accept their chosen nature. But instead, they're listening to Paul write this, and there's a rub for those Jews who are listening. Because all of Paul's letter is talking about God choosing certain people, and and they're saying, wait. You mean there's others that he's choosing? 
I want to say that because they were operating out of the wrong salvific paradigm, God chose to harden their hearts. We see this in Romans 10, verse 21. But regarding Israel, God said, All day long I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. If you go back to 9, verse 22 and 23, Paul says, in the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he's very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for his glory. Can you see why the Jews would be frustrated listening to this? I mean, these verses are bound to infuriate the Jewish listeners, but Paul working off this idea of God's sovereign nature, choosing to to have his way work. He gives glimpses of that in the very next verse, verse 24. Paul says, And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Hey, my Jewish listeners, we are among those whom God has chosen. As Jews and Gentiles. Verse 25, concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who were not my people, I will now call my people. And I will love those whom I did not love before. And verse 26, then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called the children of the living God. I think, again, Paul is choosing to flex the big guns and say, look, God's in charge, and he has a plan. So let's make sure we're all on the same page before we move forward. Uh, Paul is communicating to his Jewish listeners the fact that God is sovereign. He chooses based on the fact that he's in charge and he has a plan. So he reminded them, God chose you, Israel, but he didn't choose all of you. It's more than just racial descent. There's a remnant. This remnant, uh, who he chooses, it's, it's not fair or unfair because he's God. Keep that in mind. And he reminds them, hey, you guys have been trying to be made right with God in the wrong way. Just accept being chosen, not by works. But since you keep doing it by works, I'm going to choose to harden your hearts. So that. And here's where we are. So that God did choose to harden the hearts of the Israelites so that others could be chosen too. So that others could be chosen too. Another commentary, William Barclay writes this. He says, but in any event, this rejection of Israel was not callous and pointless and haphazard. It came about in order that the Gentiles might come in. The door was shut to the Jews so that it might be open to the Gentiles. He writes, here's the strange and terrible argument. Stripped of all its non-essentials, Paul's argument is that God can do what he likes with man or nation and that he deliberately darkened the minds and shut the eyes of the Jews in order that the Gentiles might come in. First, God chose the Jews. Then, God hardened the hearts of the Jews. Then God chose the, the, the Gentiles. In this new way, this way of faith in Jesus Christ, 
As I was thinking about this this past week, I imagined the Trinity, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sitting around this heavenly card table before time began, picturing, okay, this is ultimately what it's going to come to. And I thought, man, that's God's sovereignty. That's God with a plan. And let's listen to God's plan, okay? We keep coming back to this verse because I think it is pivotal in the entire letter of Romans. Romans. 1, 16 and 17, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this good news of Christ. It's the power of God at work saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. That's accomplished by faith. Look at Romans 10, verse 4. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given, and as a result, All who believe in him are made right with God. God chooses, and he's choosing faith as the way. Romans 10, 8 through 13. In fact, Scripture says the message is very close at hand. It's on your lips. It's in your hearts. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach to you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved For it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God, and it's by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. Verse 13, or excuse me, verse 11. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how's that for reshaping our idea of God's sovereignty? For re-understanding the idea that God chooses. He gives us a choice too. God choosing. God's sovereignty. As we're looking at in Romans 9 through 11, it talks about him being in charge. It talks about his ultimate purpose being worked towards. Now if we stop today where we're at now, There'd be a lot of people who had some serious issues with this, especially the Jews, and I think they'd have a right to take issue with it. They could say, wait, God's God's not keeping his word. He chose us. He said we were his own. He said we were going to be saved, and and now he hardened our hearts, and, and now the Gentiles are in, but we're not. Thankfully for all parties involved, that's not how Paul ends his story. Chapter 11, verse 25 and following. Paul writes, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles come to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem, and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. This is my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. Verse 28, many of the people of Israel are now enemies of God, and this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts and call can never be withdrawn. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels And God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on 
everyone. God is captain. God is choosing teams, and it looks like God is saying, I want everyone on my team. What's great is this isn't the only time Paul says something like that. He told his young apprentice, Timothy, something very similar. 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Peter also wrote something very similar. Peter was one of the inner three, the one that Jesus hung out with the most. You know, Peter, James, and John. He wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. God is sovereign. He has a plan, and he wants everyone to choose him. These last sets of verses, they give me comfort. They remind me that God does have a greater plan. They remind me of the definition of God's sovereignty that we've been working off of. God's in charge. I know that. I need to know that. We need to know that for for our own stability and for the world's stability. God has a plan. We know that. We, We need to know that. Otherwise, there's just too many things that take place in the world that would leave us scratching our head wondering. Verses like these... These uh, verses that speak of God desiring everybody to come on his team, they, they bring me back in a very small sense to soccer practice again. After my boys have, have finished scrimmaging, you know, these six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old boys who have divided up and they've been doing battle with each other, after they're done scrimmaging, we gather again as one team. We put our hands in the middle and we, and we yell our team name. No matter what side the boys were on in the scrimmage, they come back together and they realize we're on the same side. We're on Coach James' team. We are the arsenal. I hope this truth sinks into them. There may be a rub for me. There may be a rub for some of you in the fact that God chooses. Understanding this idea of God's sovereignty. Like I said at the beginning, I don't claim to understand it all. I don't claim to understand why God chooses some, some not. I may still even get grumpy, frustrated about some of the things I read, but I know that God has a plan, and I trust that. I can trust that he is sovereign. I told myself I wasn't going to use the final verses of this section as a cop-out for not having the answers. And I don't think I am. I want you to hear me say that I trust God as sovereign. And I'll hold to that. And I'll hold to these last verses in Romans chapter 11. Verse 33 through 36. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever and ever. 
Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank you that there are still things I don't understand. And as much as that can be frustrating for me personally, I thank you that I don't have to understand. I thank you that you are sovereign. And I pray, Father, that you would help me become more and more okay with that. God, as I see things taking place that I don't get, as as I see some people wandering away from faith or adamantly choosing not to follow you, I ask that you would give me the, the comfort that you desire them on your team. And yet somehow you have a plan as to whether or not they'll end up there. Lord, I pray that you'd help me be faithful in sharing the good news that you desire everyone and that you've made a way for everyone to be made right with you through faith in Jesus Christ. God, may that be a message that unifies not just our church, not just our city, but ultimately that unifies your world. I thank you that you're sovereign. I thank you that you're in charge and that you have a plan. I trust you in that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.